is playing frisbee. I'm not sure whether you know this, but there are actually lots of different frisbee throws, varying from the normal backhand one, like this, through to throwing it um, forehand, like this, or even throwing it like a discus, like, like this. I'm told, in fact, that there are actually eight or nine different throws that you can legally do with a frisbee. And throwing a frisbee is one of those things that when you try to learn it on your own, you find it really hard. However, if someone else comes along and shows you how to hold it, and how to spin it, and when to flick it, and when to flick your wrist, and at what point in the arc you release it, and that kind of thing, it becomes much easier. And that's especially true with some of the uh, trickier throws where you have to keep it level or throw it at a, a particular angle, that kind of thing. Those are the kind of things that you could never learn on your own in a million years. And yet when an expert comes uh, alongside you and helps you, you actually get the hang of it really quickly. And obviously you need lots of practice out, on the, uh, uh, out in Inverleaf Park um, during the summertime too. And I think in many ways... Throwing a frisbee is quite like prayer. There's a certain amount that we can do on our own, but it really helps when we can come into the presence of an expert and get some top tips and some help from him um, on what to do. He can show us what to do. And that's very much how we ought to approach um, this story about Abraham. Because in him, we have an expert, someone who can teach us about prayer. In the... Um, New Testament, Abraham is consistently presented to us as a model of faith and trusting God. He was someone who believed God, who trusted in his word, and looked forward to the fulfilment of all God's promises in the future, all of which are true of us as Christians as well. We ought to be doing those things too. However, the other thing that we find in him is an example about how to pray for the world around us. And the theological word for this is intercessory prayer. That is, um, not prayer that's aimed at worshipping God, or confessing our sins to him, or asking forgiveness, or anything like that, but prayer that we offer on behalf of other people. I think that we often, if we're honest, find it quite easy to pray for ourselves, and our own needs, and what we need, what we want. But we find it much harder to pray for our friends and our families who maybe aren't Christians, who maybe don't go to church, and who don't know Christ. And so I believe we need to pay careful attention to how Abraham interceded for them here, how he prayed, so that we can learn from it and then put it into practice. So then, here we learn two lessons about intercessory prayer. Um, first of all, from uh, verses 16 to 21, we learn that the basis of intercessory prayer is friendship with God. And then from verses 23 to 33, that the content of intercessory prayer is pleading with God. So then we have two points. The basis of intercessory prayer is friendship with God. And the content of intercessory prayer is pleading with God. And we will look at them one after the other. 
Till then, first of all, the basis of intercessory prayer is friendship with God. And so the first thing that we learn about prayer is that it has its roots in our personal relationship with God. We can see this from the first few verses there in the a passage when we are allowed to listen in on a conversation that God is having with himself about Abraham. Basically, God is the initiator of this whole incident. It is he who chooses to take Abraham into his confidence and tell him what is going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. Right at the heart of it is verse 19, and in particular the first phrase, where God says that he has chosen Abraham. The word there, chosen, has connotations of choosing someone in order to have a close personal relationship with them. What God is um, saying is that the nature of his relationship with Abraham has moved. It has changed. It has shifted. It is no longer just a relationship between creator and creature, or between judge and, and sinner, but it is the kind of relationship that one has with his friend. Then there are various implications of this friendship that the text spells out. The first is that God and Abraham have a special relationship. They walk together, it says. Abraham will teach his children how to love God. Their friendship will be characterised by obedience to God's commands. By keeping the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just it says. Then there will be promises to be fulfilled too. And especially this promise in particular that all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. As we will see later on, one of the ways that, that this will happen is by Abraham praying for the other nations round about him. One of the other things that friends do, of course, is to share things together. So it's no surprise that here we see God choosing to share with Abraham what he's going to do next. He lets him in on his secrets, his plans to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. God doesn't keep things from his, his friends like we occasionally do, but God tells his friends what he is doing. And then finally, a good friend will um, give weight to and will value the ideas and input and response of the other. And that again is what we see God doing here. He doesn't just announce what he's going to do and go ahead and do it. He wants Abraham to respond. He values his input. He wants to hear what Abraham has to say. Later on in um, this passage it says that God waits for Abraham to actually speak. He waits. He wants to hear what Abraham has to say. He's looking for a response from him. What we're talking about here is friendship. Perhaps the best um, analogy in our um, day and age is perhaps that of a managing director who invites an employee from the shop floor up into the boardroom to hear some new plans or maybe some new development and then asks them to contribute and chip in and respond perhaps with some of their own ideas to what has just been said. That's what God does with us. First of all, he invites us to listen to him, and then we respond in prayer. And what all this means, of course, this um, friendship with God, 
is that prayer is not just a cry for help before our exams or a 999 emergency call when we are in trouble, but is actually the product of a friendship with God where he has chosen us to be his friends and confidants. This means that he has taken us under his wing and has chosen to reveal things to us. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known, I have revealed to you. That's John chapter 15, verse 15. This means then that prayer is not a duty that we grudgingly do as a Christian, but it's just one angle of an amazing, multifaceted relationship where we are walking with God and growing in him and obeying him. It is not a ritual to perform, but a conversation that enriches. This also means, furthermore, that we should no longer see prayer as just being a, a list of our requests and concerns to God. Here, the agenda was made up in heaven, and there was only one item on it, the proposed destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham was probably more interested in his childlessness. God was interested in what was on his agenda. I think so often we think of prayer as bringing our requests to God. Have we ever stopped to think, for instance, that God might actually have other things on his agenda that he wants to talk to us about? Not least, the great cities of our nation and our day that are filled with greed and abuse of the poor and, and sexual license and the kind of immorality that we see here and that stand condemned under his judgment. Imagine if we were so concerned to pray for the things that we want that we forget to pray for the things that God wants. Imagine how tragic it would be if that was to happen. So then, I think there is a caution here to make sure that we get things the right way round. God speaks to us through his word and we respond in prayer. We don't just charge in to moon about the squeaky floorboard in office number 42. We wait to see what the managing director has to say to us first. There is also real encouragement here and that is that God wants to hear from us and involve us in his plans. I guess God could have probably just got on with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he didn't. He chose to involve his friend and hear what he had to say. And again, it's the same for us. We aren't just insignificant or a tiny cogs in some kind of giant um, um, predetermined machine. Instead, God has chosen to involve us and uses our prayers to accomplish his will. We are God's friends. We are partners with God. All, all prayer stems from friendship with God and intercessory prayer is no different in this respect. Therefore, the basis of intercessory prayer is friendship with God. If we're going to intercede well for others, first of all, we have to have that friendship in place, don't we? So then, let's move on. Number two, the content of intercessory prayer is pleading with God. And we can see this from a verse 22, right to the end of the chapter. Obviously, in um, many ways, this point follows on logically from the first. Because we are God's friends, God reveals his will to us, and then we respond by interceding for the people in the world. 
as we've already seen, God had promised Abraham that all the peoples of the earth were going to be blessed through him. And one of the ways that this was going to happen was as he interceded for them in prayer. And in verses 22 to 33, we we see the content of what he prayed. And in many ways, as a slight aside, this confirms Abraham's role as a prophet. A prophet was someone whom God had taken into his confidence and who he had revealed his plans to, who could then intercede for, for the people by standing between them and God. The interesting thing here, though, of course, is that Abraham wasn't pleading for his own people, Israel, but was pleading for the people of Sodom, who were thoroughgoing pagans, who were wicked, and who were outsiders to God. It is actually the only example that we have in the Old Testament of someone pouring out his heart to God and pleading with him to avert his judgment from unbelievers. I once heard someone uh, they tell me that there was no place in the Bible where anyone ever prayed for people who weren't Christians. But that's not really true, is it? Because here, Abraham is pleading for thoroughgoing pagans that God would avert his judgment from them. And so we see that, Abraham's, so we see that Abraham questions God. In verse 23, he asks whether God will sweep away the righteous with the wicked, as if it was some kind of oversight on God's part that he had forgotten that the righteous were even there. He then ups the stakes a little bit in verse 25 and accuses God of something more deliberate, of killing the righteous along with the wicked. Far be it from God to do that. He accuses God of cheating the righteous and the wicked in exactly the same way as if there was not really any distinction at all between the two. What an injustice, far bid from God. He says that God, you're not being fair. He questions God about his integrity. If God expects human judges to reward the righteous and punish the wicked, then how could God act any differently? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And on the one hand, Abraham's prayer, you see, is very courageous. It's very bold. After all, it is thoroughly founded and based on the character of God and his justice. But on the other hand, it's very humble. Abraham doesn't forget who he is, but he addresses God with a certain degree of reverence and awe. And again, we can see that from the kind of language he uses. In verse 27, he says that he is only dust and ashes. In verse 30, he pleads with the Lord not to be angry with him, but please let me speak. In verse 32, he asks for permission to speak for just one, one more time, if he's allowed, if it's okay with you. The language is the language of approaching God. It's humble. It's actually, in Hebrew, it's quite formal, and it's quite polite, and it's quite reverential and deferential. It's humble, but his prayer on the other hand is also bold. So what we have here is an appropriate model for us of how we approach God in prayer. We shouldn't forget that God wants us to be honest and frank with him and tell him how we feel about what what he's going to do. And that certainly includes interceding for friends and, and family members who need our prayers. In fact, the Bible encourages us to pour out our hearts to God in prayer. And 
as we do. We ask him to work in a way that is consistent with his character as he has revealed it to us in his word. But then we also need to remember who we are talking to. That we are talking to God. That we are just dust and ashes. And that he is very definitely the senior partner in, in, in the relationship. And I think the major lesson here is that our prayers, of course, are never on safer ground than when we are pleading with God to work in in a way that is consistent with who he is. God, if you're so concerned about your glory and reputation in Edinburgh, then why don't you intervene to save people here and revive your church? Why not? God, if you're concerned about justice, Let's see it in Indonesia, where your people are suffering and being killed. God, if you're merciful and loving, what about the broken lives through drugs and abuse and immorality here in Edinburgh? God, what about them? Act in accordance with your character. We can intercede with God on on the basis of his character in terms like those for God to act here and now. We can pray like Abraham did. We can plead with God to do something in our world based on his justice, his love, his mercy, his might, his power, his sovereignty. We can plead with him to um, intervene in our friends' lives on the basis of, of his character. That's the model, if you like, of intercessory prayer that Abraham gives us. However, it does have to be said that um, this particular scripture passage has proved to be a very thorny one on the subject of prayer in the history of the church. And if we dig a little bit deeper, we can begin to understand why. For a start, there's this question of negotiation. It does look alarmingly as if Abraham is haggling with God over the number of righteous who need to be present before he will spare Sodom and Gomorrah. Is that a model for us? Are we to do that kind of thing? Do we negotiate with God in prayer as if we were haggling at a kind of a market in the Middle East? Then there's the um, even harder question as to whether or not God changes his mind. If God determined to destroy Sodom and then was prepared to relent in response to Abraham's prayer, does that mean that we actually change God's mind when we pray? Furthermore, if it is true, as most of us would want to affirm, that God doesn't change his mind, then why do we need to pray at all? Surely if God has already decided what's going to happen, then we don't need to pray, do we? Because it will all happen anyway. And finally, we need to be honest and say that if this is supposed to be an example of intercessory prayer, then it isn't a very good one because it doesn't work. Even in spite of Abraham's pleading, Sodom and Gomorrah are still destroyed. His prayer doesn't seem to work, does it? What's the story there? If you can answer any of those questions, I'll be in my office during the week and, um, and, I'll, be, uh, and I'll be very grateful to uh, hear from you on what I suspect would be some rather long emails. So we can now sing the closing hymn and um, we'll all go home. However, those of you who know me uh, know that I'm uh, not prepared to 
let us all off quite so easily. And so I think the easiest way of handling this, and I'd be happy to talk more about these issues, would be to give you four statements about prayer, all of which God's word, the Bible, um, affirms to be true. And if we take these statements together, we we will find that we can use them to answer um, any of these um, four questions that I've put on the screen. Principle number one from God's word is, God is not dependent on us. This is basically saying that God is not dependent on our prayers to accomplish his plans. The scriptures teach that God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful and all-knowing and therefore his eternal purposes do not stand or fall on whether we pray or not. A fairly standard text is Psalm 115 verse 3. Pleases him. At the end of the day, God is free. Transferred to this story here, this means that if it was God's plan to overthrow Sodom and Gomorrah, then that was always going to happen. God knew that there were not ten righteous folk there, and therefore his eternal purposes stood firm. However, we cannot hold on to this particular truth in isolation, because it doesn't give us the whole biblical picture. There is also an Another side to the coin. If this side is God's um, sovereignty, then there is also another, which is called human responsibility. And that moves us on to principle number two, which is God chooses to work through our prayers. The fact of the matter is that although God is not dependent on us, he has chosen to work through us and graciously uses our prayers to do his work in the world. The way that he has uh, made up, if you like, the moral and spiritual fabric of the universe is that he works through the prayers of his people. That's just the way it is. Therefore, we need to pray. And the way that we can see that in this story in particular is the way that God raised up Abraham. God takes the initiative all the way through. God raised up Abraham to pray for Sodom and Gomorrah and rescue Lot. If Abraham hadn't prayed, then the situation would have been very different. In that case, God's plans would have obviously been for something else. As it were, they were very definitely to use Abraham's prayers to rescue Lot. And this truth means that we should always pray. And if we don't pray, we are responsible for that. We should always pray because that is the way that God has chosen to work out his purposes in the world. We never have an excuse for not praying just because God is um, sovereign and not dependent on us. Principle number three, there's also something else that happens in prayer, and that is that God changes us as we pray. And that's what um, Abraham discovered here. I think the right way to look at this prayer is is not just negotiating or haggling, but rather something like exploring. As Abraham pushes forward the boundaries of his relationship with God by faith, the more he prays, the lower the number gets, the more Abraham is discovering God's love and mercy. He's experiencing God's heart for lost people. And discovering that God would spare Sodom, not not only for um, five righteous people, but if there were only ten righteous people to be found there. The further Abraham 
pushes him, the more Abraham is reassured about God's love, his character, his mercy, and the more his faith and his confidence and his love for God increases. He gets an insight into God's in, 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 into the breadth of God's mercy that you would have never otherwise had. He's going deeper and deeper into God as he intercedes and God is drawing him on and encouraging him, him to come forward and be more confident in his relationship with him. It's not a great illustration, but perhaps the best way to think about it is maybe as two lovers where one has brought the other a, a present and the other, and, and is making the other guess what it is. And in the ensuing questioning and guessing and uh, answering, they find that their relationship grows and their love deepens as they explore each other's love. I know that's an imperfect picture, but it is the kind of thing that is going on here. It is not two tradesmen haggling with each other. It is two lovers growing in trust and discovering new depths of love. As we pray to God, so our relationship with him grows and we ourselves are changed. Our faith increases. So then, principle number four, prayer never fails. Well, it's true to say that God did not spare Sodom. It is not true to say that Abraham's prayer failed. Instead, God brought Abraham onto the scene as an intercessor and he saved Lot as a result. Just the next chapter, Genesis 19, verse 29, tells us that God remembered Abraham and rescued Lot from the catastrophe that he had brought about. Even God's intention to bless all the nations through Abraham stands firm. What we don't know in the 21st century, but would have been immediately obvious to the first readers of this passage in the Middle East, is that through Lot's line, the nations of Moab and Ammon were to emerge. Abraham's prayer to, to, that led to Lot being rescued, in turn, led to some of the nations who are actually um, neighbours of Israel later on. And then, as we've seen, Abraham was changed by his own prayer. He discovered more about God and grew in his experience of God's mercy and justice and love. Now, I admit it's um, hard to see how some of these truths sometimes logically hang together. And if studying prayer in this passage, um, actually until about two o'clock this morning, has taught me anything, it is that prayer is a mystery that it is impossible to reduce to a simple equation of cause and effect. And thinking about it, maybe that's good. Because it reminds me that prayer is an exciting, real, vibrant relationship with a real living person and not some kind of scientific formula or giant slot machine in the sky. And that has to be right, doesn't it? That has to be a right attitude to prayer, that it's all about relationship, friendship with God. If you like, it is two lovers, not two a, a tradesmen negotiating to get the best deal. So we've had some uh, theological um, enjoyment with those big questions. Um, but the important thing, I think, is that we don't let any of these um, big questions distract us from the real message of this scripture passage, which is the role that we have as an intercessor like Abraham for the people who are under God's judgment around us. The content of intercessory prayer is pleading with God. 
when Jesus was on earth, he said that the days that we are living in now were just like the days of Lot. That people would be eating and drinking, buying and selling, building and planting, living their lives, and then God's judgment would fall when they were least expecting it. And so I think the final question, the most practical one that we as a church and we as individuals need to face up to here is this. What do we need to do to be an intercessor? What do we have to do to be like Abraham? What will it take for us to be intercessors for our generation of students, for our generation, be it old, middle-aged or young, our generation of young people amongst the friends who we are maybe with? What will it take for us to be intercessors? Three things. Number one, believe in hell. I, I don't think we're ever going to intercede for others unless we first of all believe that they are under God's judgment. Notice that it was actually the revelation of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah that got Abraham praying here. And I sometimes wonder whether many of us, and I include myself in this, are what I would call practical universalists. That is, that whatever we might say that we believe about hell, we practically live as if it didn't exist and doesn't affect our lives. We practically live as pretty much everyone around about us who is going to heaven. Thank you very much. From time to time, I pull down a, a sermon in my study called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God from my bookcase and have a read of it. It was written by a Puritan preacher in New England in the 1700s, a guy called Jonathan Edwards, and it is truly terrifying stuff. He was preaching on the text, their foot shall slide in due time, from the book of Deuteronomy. And even as a Christian, when I read it, it sends uh, shivers up and down my spine. But it, it does focus me. It reminds me that when I am dealing with someone sitting across the desk, from me in my office that I'm dealing with eternal issues. It keeps me sharp when I'm having coffee with someone who is inquiring and who is asking questions. And it does make me pray for people who come to this church here who yet still don't know Christ. So one, if you want to be an intercessor, believe in hell. Two, the next thing is, love the lost. What motivated Abraham in this story was, I'm sure partly, his uh, love and concern for his nephew Lot, his wife, his uh, daughters, and his two uh, sons-in-law. Also, I'm sure, Abraham knew lots of other people in Sodom too, and was sure that ten righteous could be found somewhere. And that drove him to intercede for them. I can remember being with a friend in Cambridge, who was in tears after a family gathering for no other reason than it had really hit home with him that his family were lost. They were a large and, su- and successful family, all well educated with good um, jobs and respectable. And yet he realised that they were truly lost, that they were without Christ and without hope in the world. I'd re- read many times in Christian books about people who used to cry over people who were lost but I'd never actually seen it with my own two eyes. My friend has now probably forgotten about the incident. He's now doing a um, similar job to me somewhere in in England. But I haven't, because I think that was 
one of the first times that I realized that I didn't love the people around me nearly as much as he did. And if um, I was going to pray for them, and if he was going to pray for them, then the first step was actually loving them. Love the lost and being concerned about them. Number three, pray with passion. Once we believe in hell and love the lost, the people around us who are perishing, we will pray with passion. I think this is the real challenge of these verses, as I've already said, to pray with the same fervency and fire that Abraham did. And I do have to say that I think many of my own prayers often fall short of the kind of intensity and pleading that we see here. I once heard someone say that if God answered all the prayers at their church prayer meeting, then the hospitals would be empty and hell would be full. I've often thought about that because it's a challenge to me as to what I pray for. What would the world be like if God was to suddenly answer every prayer that John Percival had? Would the work of missions be advancing? Would there be people becoming Christians in Edinburgh and beyond? Would my mates have more opportunity to tell people about Christ at work? Or would I just have lots of nice things and a very fulfilled life? What do you pray for? What would the world be like if God were to answer all of your prayers? I challenge you to think about that. Would it be the same, pretty much, as it is at the moment, or would it be different? Would you be making a difference for God in the content of your prayers if God were to suddenly answer them? So here, we've got to be very honest and express that we... um, you know, Abraham is challenging us to kind of pour out our hearts in intercessory prayer. Not just for ourselves or prayers of confession, but prayers for others. Prayers for missionaries. Prayers for the lost. Prayers for the perishing city where we live. I admit that that's not an easy message, not easy to prepare, not easy to preach. But that is what God's saying here. Through Abraham's prayer though, God rescued Lot from judgment. Let's not lose sight of that. Who can tell what eternal rescues might be achieved in the lives of our family and our friends and our church if we were to learn to persist in intercessory prayer? Who can tell what God might do through us if we learn to plead? Who can tell what God might do through us through this church if we learn to pray as Abraham does and did here? Let's pray together.